Well, if you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. This morning we're going to start a short series where we go through two chapters in the book of Revelation. Now I realize in coming to the book of Revelation, depending on how familiar you, you are with the Bible, we're coming to arguably the book of the Bible that generates the most questions, the most <laughs> intrigue, sometimes the most confusion. It's this vision that John receives from Jesus and visions that moves us into the future and it's got all kinds of fascinating, challenging imagery and symbolism and as a result, for some people, when it comes to the book of Revelation, we just avoid it, right? I think for some, it's like, well, I, I, don't need, <laughs> I don't need that. Give me the Proverbs. Give me the Gospels. Some people just kind of naturally avoid Revelation. Other people can't get enough of it. Generation after generation, we ask, are we living in the times described by the book of Revelation, even as, oh, you know, over the last couple of years, we went, we went through a global pandemic. We've seen all kinds of rising cultural tension, not only in our country, but in other parts of the world. And I think for many of us, it's, a, it's, it's raised these issues of, okay, are we, are we living in the times described in the book of Revelation? Now, wherever you're at on this spectrum, where you can't get enough of Revelation, you said, I'm, I'm not even sure where it's in the Bible, right? Or... I've never really even gotten into it. Wherever you're at on the, that spectrum, there's one foundational fact we need to keep in mind when we come to this book. And this fact is really going to be the, the nature of this series as we're in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And that fundamental fact is this. The book of Revelation was written to seven specific churches. Okay, the book of Revelation was written to seven specific churches. We see this at the very beginning. To the seven churches in the province of Asia. Not only was this book written to these seven churches, in the opening part of the book, in chapters 2 and 3, each of these churches is addressed specifically. Each of these churches is addressed by Jesus. In essence, each of these churches gets their own letter. Now, to show you where the, these churches are located, let me, let me show you this map. So th this is an area known in the ancient world as Asia Minor. We know it today as Western Turkey. And, and you see the seven churches there. And if, if you look carefully, in essence... The order that these seven churches are addressed in Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, is the order in which a courier would have taken the letter through this part of the Roman Empire, right? He would have started at Ephesus, worked his way up to Pergamum, and then all the way back down to Laodicea. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to work our way through these seven letters to these seven churches. And as we go through these different letters, you're going to see there's a particular kind of pattern that each of the letter follows. They, they begin with kind of a vision of who Jesus is. And they also include, most of them include, commendation as well as correction. That is, Jesus addresses each of these churches and he will say things, hey, here's, what, here's, here's where you're knocking it out of the park. Here's where you're doing well. 
But we also see he's willing to say very directly, and here's where you're messing up. Here's, here's what's getting in the way of the life that I intend for you to lead. Here's the obstacle that you need to address. So there's a vision of Jesus, there's a commendation, there's correction, and then, then there's a warning, and then there's a promise. If you, if you embrace my words, in different ways it says, you are going to experience the life that only I can give you. And interestingly, as we read through the promises in each of these books, or in each of these letters, there's a, recurring, there's a recurring term that we're going to see over and over again. And I'll, I'll show you the first occurrence of that term in verse 7 of chapter 2. To the one who is victorious. Over and over, we're going to read this in the promises. Jesus is saying, look, here's what I want you to address. and what I, want. I want you to be victorious in this. I want you to overcome this. Because it's getting in the way of you following me. We're going to read that over and over in this letter. Now, the, the term, the word group here is actually the Greek. It's the Greek verb nikao. I know that doesn't mean anything to you. Uh, but I mention it because you're actually already familiar with it. In fact, some of you are wearing it. Because you bring this word group into English and you know what you get? Nike, right? You didn't know that. You didn't know there are tennis shoes in the Bible. Um, but yeah, that's, this, is, this, is where, this is where that term comes from. It, to win, to overcome, to be victorious. This is going to be the invitation that Jesus gives over and over in these letters. I just think about some, some of the Nike commercials you've seen where people, right, they're sweating, they're training, they're overcoming obstacles. It's Jesus' invitation to these churches. And I think by extension, it's his invitation to us. He's saying, look, there, there are certain things that are getting in the way of you following me. Certain things, in, in some cases, they're internal, just how you're thinking and behaving and your way of life. And other things are kind of external, right? They're going to be, you've got to deal with hardships and you've got to deal with the, the challenge to compromise culturally. And they're, they're going to be those things. And so all along the way, we're going to see Jesus saying, look, here's what's getting in the way and, and I want you to overcome. And of course, the question question then is, well, how? How are, are they going to overcome? Well, as we go through each of the letter, we're going to see Jesus give specific guidance, specific direction to each of these seven churches. But I think also there's a more general statement that, that is fascinating, and it's made right in the middle of the book because we get to chapter 12, and here's that term again. They triumphed over him. That is, they triumphed over the forces of Satan. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Amidst all these obstacles and challenges that Jesus is describing, how do we, how do we work through that? How do we move past it? How do we engage it well? 
triumphed by the blood of the Lamb. That is, they, they triumphed by embracing their identity as followers of Jesus. They triumphed by understanding and growing in that relationship. And furthermore, they also triumphed by the word of their testimony. They embraced this relationship. And they lived it out in their everyday experience. If, if I were to use different terms, you know what's being said here? They triumphed by going deeper and wider. Right? We're in this season as a church where we're, we're encouraging you to go deeper and wider in your faith, to grow in that relationship and in different ways. We're providing resources for you to do that. And we, we also want to encourage you to kind of grow wider and living it out. Even as Dave has mentioned, we've got church beyond the walls coming. And this is just a, a great way to live out our faith. And, and in a real sense, even as we've been talking about this for the last few weeks, now what we're going to do is we're going to jump into the pages of Scripture and we're going to see how these ancient churches were challenged to grow deeper and wider in their particular circumstances. Now, as we go through, as we go through these, as we go through these different passages, please understand, not all of this is going to apply to you, but if you do see yourself in some of these particular examples, would you also hear Jesus saying to you, overcome, overcome, overcome? Now, as we think about how Jesus is addressing these early churches, uh, notice the language he uses. And, and here's what I mean by that. <laughs> Let's note some terms that Jesus doesn't use, okay? Jesus doesn't say, you're aboveers. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus doesn't say, hey, your life is supposed to be one where you just kind of go above the hardships. Your life is one in which you kind of just, you ride above the challenges of everyday life. And sometimes I think, I think if, if we're honest, that's the kind of expectations we have as Christians. Right? We, we kind of want Jesus to just make all the challenges go away. And tragically, this is where some people get stuck. It's like I've got this expectation. I, be, I became a follower of Jesus. And I thought things were going to be better, but it hasn't magically made the challenges disappear. And it's like, that's not what Jesus promised. That's not what's going on in the book of Revelation, right? We're not aboveers. <laughs> Furthermore, we're not avoiders. I think for some, you know, life gets complicated, and it's, it, 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 sometimes relationally, financially, things at work, and, 
And maybe they're just ways in which we, we just try to avoid it. We just try to work around it. We just, you know, in certain relationships, I'm just going to kind of avoid these people. There's something that needs to be addressed, but I'm just going to kind of walk around that. I'm just going to kind of avoid it and, and pretend it isn't there. So our lives get complicated relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and we just, well, if I just, maybe, just, uh, you know, just go, I'm going to do other things. I'm going to occupy myself with other things. Christians aren't aboveers. We're not avoiders. We're people who are called to overcome. And that's, that's going to be the recurring invitation in each of these letters. Overcome. Overcome. So over the course of these weeks, as we look at these different issues that the churches are facing, right, from apathy to moral compromise to hardship to weariness, at those moments when you find yourself in these letters, I pray that you're going to hear Jesus' invitation. I'm inviting you into a way of life and I want you to I want you to be victorious you're not going to go above it you're not going to pretend it's not there but I, I want to walk through this with you and that's exactly what he's telling these churches and I think in a real sense the, the way the book holds together is this there's a vision of Jesus at the Beginning of the book, a triumphant vision of Jesus. There are these letters to these seven churches. And then the, the rest of the book that kind of in dramatic fashion unpacks the future is the rationale for why these churches need to take Jesus' words seriously. Take me seriously as I'm encouraging you to overcome because this is how my victory will ultimately be fulfilled. And in a real sense, the message of Revelation can be summarized in two words. Jesus wins. And in light of that ultimate victory, Jesus is telling these churches, and he's telling us, pay attention to what I'm saying to you. Because I want you to overcome these things that are now getting in the way of you following me. These things that are now getting in the way of you experiencing the life that I want you to live. So that's what we're going to see in the course of going through these letters. Now, as we, as I mentioned a moment ago in looking at that map, the first church addressed is this church of Ephesus. So let's just take a few moments and work our way through this letter to understand what Jesus says to this church. So we begin in Ephesus with Revelation 2.1. So here the, here's the vision that John records from Jesus that is the message to the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we're going to see that these, these churches and the letters to these churches include reference to kind of an angel associated with the church. And some have interpreted that to mean, well, that's a reference to the pastor of the church or leader of the church. But 
But I think it's best to understand that Jesus is actually referring to a member of the angelic realm. And he's reminding us, he's reminding these churches that there is a spiritual reality at work beyond what you see in the physical realm, beyond your physical existence. And then we have this description of Jesus. He's, he's the one who holds the seven stars, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And, and the stars kind of a reference to the angels associated with these churches. And the lampstands are reference to the churches. And what this imagery communicates, first of all, it just it, it, it communicates the power. <laughs> it communicates the power of who Christ is. I mean, in, particularly in the ancient world, to hold something in your right hand was a sign of authority and significance and sovereignty. So Jesus' power is at work, but it also communicates his presence. He is the one who is with you. He is walking among you. He's walking among the churches. He's right there with you. And then we get to the commendation. And here's, here's how the church in Ephesus is commended. I know your deeds. Right? I know your deeds. And then that's kind of unpacked in two ways. Your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and had found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, as you look at this, you know, again, Jesus is saying, hey, hey guys, here's what you've really done well. Here's what, here's what I value about your church community. And I think the commendation really moves in two different directions. First of all, he says they have not tolerated false teaching. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but we, we get clues to this when we read the New Testament, and we also get clues when we read early Christian literature, that from the very earliest moments of the Christian movement, there was the danger that people would go around as false teachers. And in different ways, they would either add to or subtract from the message of Jesus. And apparently this started early on. So that churches, need to be on, churches needed to be on their guard against false teaching and people that would come in the name of Christ, but they're not really bringing the message of Jesus. And there was the danger that they would infiltrate these little house churches and it began, you know, kind of communicating this message was deficient. In different ways, we see that in the New Testament, that some of this is already happening, so churches need to be on their guard. Furthermore, when you go back to Acts chapter 20, when Paul the Apostle said goodbye to the leaders of the Ephesian church. He warns them specifically in Acts 20, be, be on your guard against this. And apparently they took his word seriously. I mean, this church was known, we are committed to the orthodox gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to let false teachers infiltrate our community. So that was one way I think that they are being commended here. And we also, when you get to verse 6, we'll there's this reference to these people called the Nicolaitans. We'll talk about them later in the series. But they seem to be people who were in different ways compromising the gospel. And, and this church has cut them off. They haven't been allowed to have influence. 
So they, they kind of guarded the truth of the gospel by keeping out false teaching. And I think secondly here, they're, they're commended because they've embraced the truth of Christ in an environment where they're surrounded by all types of competing ideas. Right? They've embraced the gospel even when it led to hardships, right? You've endured hardships and have not grown weary. You have persevered. And I don't think we can take this commendation lightly of, what, of how these people were, you know, living. Just to kind of underscore the nature of this commendation, let me, let me just kind of give you a quick walk through parts of the ancient city of Ephesus. So you start in Ephesus, kind of at the upper part of the city, and it was kind of the the headquarters for the local government, what you might call City Hall. And in the middle of that area, there was this courtyard. And in this courtyard, there would have been what you might think of as an eternal flame. You're familiar with the flame at the, you know, at the Olympics every couple of years. Well, there was an eternal flame it, kind of in the courtyard of this civic area of Ephesus. And it was dedicated to the worship of the goddess Artemis, who was kind of the patron deity of Ephesus. So the flame was at the heart of the city reminding them that, hey, we're committed to her. The flame was even maintained by priests and priestesses who were dedicated to her worship. And so we moved from that part of the city. We kind of continued down the main road. And as we continue down this main road into the heart of the city, off to our left, we're going to pass this temple area. And there would have been a temple here, and it would have been dedicated to the Roman emperor. As it turns out, starting in the first century when Rome became an empire, one of the ways, one of the ways cities throughout the empire ingratiated themselves to Rome and to, to the emperor was they, they built temples dedicated to the emperor. And over time, it developed a process of emperor worship. And cities competed to have these temples because they wanted to show their loyalty to Rome. And, and Ephesus was at the vanguard, at the front lines of emperor worship. So we, we're walking down the street and there's, you know, here's this temple to the emperor. Furthermore, as we walk throughout the city, as we walk further down the street, at different places we're going to see shrines to various gods and goddesses, different kinds of reliefs that are just in the public buildings, in the gates, and along the passageways. So this, by the way, is the goddess Nike, the goddess of victory. She's not wearing Air Jordans, but if you look carefully in her hand, she has kind of a, a wreath, which is the crown of victory given to victorious athletes and soldiers. So she is the goddess of victory. And you, you would have seen things like this walking through the city. And furthermore, when you, if you go outside the city about a mile and a half, you, you would come to the most famous part of Ephesus because you would come to this area, this massive field. And it doesn't look like much today, but this was once the location of the temple of Artemis. Here's a model of that temple. It was the largest red, uh, religious building in the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you're familiar with the Parthenon in Athens, this building was twice the size. And, and Artemis was worshipped throughout the Roman world, but this, this was her home temple. And so much of the life, the economy, the social engagement of Ephesus, all of that revolved around the activity of this temple. 
And in the midst of going through what I've just described day after day, walking these streets day after day, this church has remained true to the gospel. Man, that is, that's impressive. But, but, there was a problem. That wasn't the whole story. Then we get to the critique in verse 4, and we read this. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And what does that mean? Well, I, I think so maybe, in the, maybe the, the way we sometimes read this is, well, you don't love Jesus like you used to. But for several reasons, I don't think that's quite right. Because if it were just a matter of you don't love Jesus the way you used to, I, I would have expected the correction later in the passage to be something like, well, come back to me, return to me, believe in God. But instead, as we're going to see, it's, it's do the things you used to do. So arguably, I think what Jesus is saying here, you're not loving others the way you used to. And in a, in a phrase, this church is now a place of loveless orthodoxy. Now, it's, it's, it, I think it's easy to envision how this happened, right? The church began. People embraced the gospel, embraced one another. This was a place where God's love was at work. But over time, there are these false teachers, right, that, that came in, and you had to be on your guard, and you had to, man, we had to get rid of this. They were telling us that we could, you know, they could tell, we could believe in God and Jesus, but you can believe in the other gods as well. We had to cut that off. We had to stand against that. We had to be on our guard. They had to defend the truth. Likewise, over time, you know, we, we experienced the weariness of living out our faith in our community, and we just, we just, we just kind of became on our guard. So over a few years, perhaps tension developed in the church because, you know, we were, we were now so vigilant and defensive that we were just willing to attack one another anytime it felt like somebody's getting out of line. And likewise, they became more defensive in dealing with outsiders. And what was lost, what was lost in the process was love. And can I say, this, this really leads to this question, and this is, uh, maybe if I just give you one question, one question to think about today from the church at Ephesus, it's this. The question is, has my commitment to truth outpaced my commitment to love? Has my commitment to truth outpaced my commitment to love? Now, this, this church was absolutely committed to the truth of the gospel, and we need that as well. The solution isn't, well, you just don't need to care about the truth anymore. They were absolutely committed to the truth of the gospel, but the commitment to love was now way back here. The commitment to truth outpaced 
your commitment to love. And I, th- I think we need, we need to wrestle. Is that, is that something at work in my life? Let, let me just, let's see if I can just kind of unpack what this might look like. I mean, I, can, I, I think this can still be at work. Maybe it looks a little differently in our situation than theirs, but here are just a couple of examples I thought about. You know, maybe as a parent, I am so committed to my kids knowing the truth and living out the truth. I so want them just to kind of embrace Christianity and a biblical way of life. But in reality, I parent out of fear. And as a result, what my kids really experience, what my kids experience, they experience the rules and they experience my anger and my fear when they break the rules, when they mess up. And somehow what's lost in the process is they really don't sense the way I love them. Or maybe relationally, you know, I know all sorts of people. You know, I, you know, people at school, people at work, and, you know, some of them are just making lifestyle choices that are very antithetical to Scripture. And when I see that, you know, I've just kind of developed a pattern of, wow, I just feel a little bit superior. I'm, I'm glad I'm not doing what they are doing, and maybe even, maybe even I develop a condescending attitude. Or maybe when I find myself in those situations, I, I just cut those people off. And the truth is, you know, yeah, I'm committed to truth, but, but commitment to love is just kind of way back here. Maybe there are ways in which my life is just overflowing with busyness. Right? And and I've just gotten accustomed to that. I just live life at a really rapid speed. And as a result, the relationships in my life are really transactional. Right? Just kind of a need to know information going back and forth. And I'm not really investing in the opportunities that are around me. But, but you know, I feel like it's okay because I'm a Christian. I have the right beliefs. I made a commitment to Jesus. I know the gospel. And once again, it's like my, I got this commitment to truth, but the commitment to love. It's way back here. One more example. Here's, and here's the one that gets me, okay? I wasn't sure I was going to share this, but I think I should. So, maybe I enjoy studying the Bible and learning. I, you know, I'm a student by nature. And so, I, you know, there are certain websites I go to, books I enjoy, podcasts I enjoy. I'm in Bible studies. And what thrills me is learning something new, something I didn't know before. But the problem is once I learn something, it's like, well, I'm good. I never really think about what is that, you know, how does that really impact my life? It's just I now know something that I didn't know before. And that's the win. And so I become comfortable with, hey, here's my commitment to truth, but it's okay if my commitment to love is back here because, you know what, I'm learning more and more theology and more and more about the Bible. As I was thinking about that this week, I was reading a book by a a very uh, influential Christian leader from centuries ago, one of the leaders of Christianity 
over the first four centuries is a guy named Augustine. Very influential if you study church history. And uh, Augustine wrote what is the first known handbook on studying the Bible and teaching the Bible. And in in that handbook, he makes this provocative claim. He says, look, if you're studying the Bible and you think you've really come to understand, you know, what this passage means or what this book means, if you're studying, you think you've really got a handle on it, but it doesn't lead you to love. It doesn't in any way encourage you to love God or love others. If it doesn't encourage you to do that, he says, (laughs) you haven't understood it yet. And so, you know, these are different ways in which we can kind of become comfortable with, here's my commitment to the truth, but here's my commitment to love. And once again, Jesus is saying, look, you just don't, you know, just just pull back. You don't have to be that committed. No, you need to be committed to truth, but how can your commitment to truth foster a commitment to loving others? Well, that question leads to Jesus' corrective which continues in this passage. So we get to verse 5, and Jesus says this, right? Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So what does Jesus say to this church of loveless orthodoxy? What does he say specifically to us who may be kind of comfortable with our commitment to truth superseding our commitment to love. Well, very quickly, let me just highlight the elements of this verse. He says, first of all, he says, remember, right? And I think it's, it's almost like he's saying, I want you to remember what it was like when you first experienced the message of Jesus. Remember what it was like when you first understood the reality of God's love and what he had done on your behalf. It's interesting, in the, in the book of Ephesians, when Paul is writing this church in an earlier time, he commends them for their love for one another. He says, I've already heard. I mean, this is the reputation your church has. This is the kind of place you are, your place that truly loves one another. That had been part of their past. But they'd moved away from that. Let me ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, have you had those moments where you just have a deep awareness of the overwhelming wonder of the gospel? Of the wonder of God's forgiveness, his renewal, the fact that he, he has adopted you into his family, that you're in the process of being restored. Maybe that happened when you became a Christian. For some of us, that, maybe that wasn't a dramatic moment for me. I mean, it was interesting. So I was about eight years old, and, and I'm a pastor's kid, right? I'd grown, up in a, I'd grown up in a pastor's family. I mean, from the early age, I was at church. I knew the stories. I knew the questions. I was always the first to raise my hand in Sunday school and, and all of that. But I was, at a, I was at a Christian camp. And I don't know how else to describe that moment, how else to describe that experience than to say this, that, you know, I, 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 it wasn't like I was hearing anything new. I knew the message of Jesus. I knew the stories. But in God's providence and God's grace, this deep awareness just overwhelmed me that this applies to me. 
And although that was over 50 years ago, I still remember one of the things I wanted to do was just tell a couple of my friends. That was that right? And there was this, oh, just this deep reality that Christ died for me and that through my faith and trust in him, I could experience this new way of life as an eight-year-old would understand it. And what about for you? Have there been those moments that just kind of blew you away with the reality of what God has done on your behalf? And maybe there's certain experiences that kind of just allow you to experience his presence. And it's like, Jesus, I want you to go back to that. I want you to remember that. I want you to embrace that. And then he says, repent. And this is going to be a recurrent. We're going to see this theme throughout these seven letters, repent. We're going to hear this over and over again. And it's, it's like if there are ways you have gotten comfortable in this place, if there are ways you have gotten comfortable with my commitment to truth supersedes my commitment to love, if there are those places, you need to recognize that's wrong. You need to acknowledge that. This isn't okay. This isn't how it's supposed to be. This isn't what following Jesus looks like. And maybe even for some of us now, as we've been talking about that, there's, there's this relationship in your life where you realize this is what it looks like. And that's not okay. And then finally he says, redo, right? I want you to go back to those things you did at first. He's saying, look, do you remember how you engaged one another and other people when you first trusted me? Do you remember what that looked like? Do you remember how you encouraged one another? I want you to go back to that place. Now, I realize here's a place where we can get stuck because, you, you, George, you're saying we need to love other people. And I'm supposed to live out God's love. And, and that just sounds so generic. It sounds so, I mean, it's a Sunday morning. That's what we say at church. And, but how do I do that? I mean, my, my schedule, as busy as it is, what does that look like? Well, let me go back to Augustine. Because in that same handbook that I mentioned, he makes this I, this, I think this is wonderfully perceptive. Augustine says this, look, he says, I, I've told you you need to love everyone, right? <laughs> he says that. But he says, in reality, you can't do that, right? But what about the people around you, he says? What about the people that are currently in your life? What about the people in your family, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, the people in your neighborhood or apartment complex, the people that kind of normally cross your path week by week, month by month? What does it look like to reflect the love of Christ in those relationships? What does it look like to be for them? One of the prayers we can come away with as we read this letter is this. God, where are you giving me opportunities right now to live out your love? God, where are you giving me opportunities right now to live out your love?
God, we want, we want to be committed to the truth, and we realize at times, culturally, that puts us in very different places compared to people around us. But even in the midst of that, Father, we want to be people who are living out the truth, uh, living out the love that flows, flows from the message of Jesus Christ. So where is God giving you opportunities to live out his love right now? As you think about that, I, I just I want, I want to pray for us and pray this prayer for us, okay? So would you join me? Join me in prayer. Father, I'm not sure if this text applies to all of us, but I think for some of us, even now, we, we kind of know those relationships where yeah, we're committed to you, we're committed to the truth, but maybe, maybe our commitment to the truth has outpaced our commitment to love. Father, if that's the case, I pray that you would just bring us back to the wonder of the gospel and the wonder of what you were doing through Christ. And I pray you'd also convict us. Convict us that maybe what's become status quo in our lives is not what you desire. For some of us, this, this is just relationships in our family. For some of us, it's extended family. For some of us, maybe it's just how we're engaging people at work or people in our community or our willingness to kind of just look at people and foster such negative thoughts, but it feels like it's not important because I'm still committed to the gospel. So, Father, if there are particular places in our lives where this kind of pattern is at work, would you convict us that this is not okay? pray that you would also give us insight and just, God, what does it look like to live out your love in this relationship? How can my commitment to love reflect my commitment to the truth of the gospel? Would your spirit just kind of convict and challenge and guide us in that direction? In Jesus' name. thinking about that prayer as Jesus challenges that church and he challenges us notice how he closes if I could have that last verse whoever has ears let them hear what the spirit says to the church to the one who overcomes to the one who embraces the reality that their commitment to love should reflect their commitment to truth I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And I think Jesus is saying every time you take steps in this direction, you are reflecting your destiny as a citizen of the new heavens and the new earth. You are reflecting the victory that I will ultimately achieve. So let's not be people of loveless orthodoxy. Let's be people whose commitment to love flows out of our commitment to truth. Now with that in mind, as you leave, I'm going to invite members of our prayer team to be up here at the front. And if there are ways we can be with you and pray with you, we want to do that. So we're going to be available. So now as you go, may we go as people who are committed to truth, 
but also committed to love.